as a non-alumnus of Princeton Theological Seminary, I am especially grateful and honored by your invitation to preach today at this closing service. Believe it or not, yesterday I had to fly to Jamaica. Your astonishment will lessen when you learn that by fly, I was flying over the tracks of New Jersey Transit to Jamaica, New York. <laughs> I had to speak briefly to the Presbytery of New York City, a presbytery that is known through the years for distinguished PTS alumni serving in its ranks, folks like Fred Anderson, Michael Linval, and Carl Nelson, all honorably retired. But I want you to know that there were scores of our recent graduates at that presbytery meeting, and they are infusing into that presbytery a passion both for the gospel and for innovative forms of ministry. These include recent graduates like Moses Biney, Christina Cosby at Madison Avenue Church, Chris de la Cruz at First Presbyterian Jamaica, and Bertram Johnson, a candidate for co-moderator of the General Assembly, serving at the Riverside Church. We are in the midst of a generational transfer. <laughs> are we ever? <laughs> and I'm happy to say that it is being led nationally by many of our alumni. So thank you for your service, both yesterday, today, and tomorrow. For your prayers. And for your support of the seminary. Now, in Zwinglian style, I'm going to say something about the text, and then we'll start preaching. <laughs> <laughs> the first letter of John is possibly one of the first portions of the Bible that you ever read or ever could read once you passed your introductory Greek class. 1 John, in its relatively simple koine, is clear, yet so enigmatic. How little we know about it. Reading the text, it does not appear who the human author or editors were. It does not appear when or where it was written. It does not appear to whom or by whom it was sent. It does reprimand wrongdoers, but it does not appear who these folks actually were. In fact, from the text of 1 John, it does not appear even to be a letter. So simple, so clear yet so enigmatic. Perhaps 1 John is itself a testimony and a parable 
about the mystery that surrounds our lives. What are we to do in the face of this mystery? Listen for the word of God. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let us pray. Holy Father, who sent to us your Son, the Word made flesh, we humbly ask through him for you to send upon us and upon this ancient Word of faith your Holy Spirit, so that we may greet with thanksgiving and praise your promised word of assurance. Amen. First John emphatically declares to the Christian community that we are not God's children simply because we are born. We are God's children because we are called children by the liberality of a living and loving God. We are not God's children simply because we are born, but because we are chosen, adopted, elected by a God who often in spite of us wills to be with us and for us so that we may be with and for each other. This means our deepest and truest identity is not bestowed by what 1 John calls the world. It's bestowed by God. This world cannot take our divine adoption from us. This world cannot nullify our election by God. This world cannot cancel our particular calling, the specific vocation that has your name on it. The world cannot take that away from you. It's given by God. Now in 1 John, the word cosmos or world, as in the fourth gospel, does not usually refer to the world that God created and pronounced good. Rather, for 1 John, world means the socio-cultural world that humanity over centuries has constructed for itself. It's a world of social arrangements, of mores and morals. It's a world of political, economic, and religious systems, including Christianity with many of these systems simply inherited or unconsciously accepted, along with all of their power dynamics. Now, such operating systems are usually taken as simply the way things are, whether in faraway Madagascar 
or in Ferguson, Missouri. But this world we have built actually imprisons us in its mores, its customs, its systems. This world's a field force, a gravitational pull that seeks to bring everyone and everything into its orbit. It's a world that struts its stuff to command our constant attention, to demand our deference and our daily allegiance. It often goes by the name of the real world. Supposedly, it's the world you enter after you leave seminary. But we know that this world is very much a part of every seminary and every institution. It's not only around us, but it's in us, just as our cultures and contexts are. We breathe the air of this world daily. But according to 1 John, the supposed real world we've invented and built does not acknowledge the world of Jesus Christ. It does not have eyes and ears to see what God is doing today through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this world therefore blindly lashes out at anyone who suggests it, it is impermanent or impertinent. And in the face of Jesus Christ, from whom there is more to come, this world, says 1 John, is passing away. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We never outgrow our need to hear this promise, because we never outgrow our need to welcome Jesus Christ in this world. The gospel is new every day. That's why we are called regularly and repeatedly to communion with one another and with God. That is why precisely as God's children now, we can sing in solidarity with all the children of this world. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because of thy promise, I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. Beloved, we are God's children now. And then, 1 John makes an abrupt transition from this now to a qualifying not. It does not yet appear what we shall be. Well, hold on a minute. Don't we all know too well what we shall be? In his first book of memoirs, Palimpsest, the American writer and essayist, Gore Vidal concluded by writing, October 3, 1994, 
Senile? Yes. I am 69 today, an age that I never expected when I was young. At noon on the East Coast, the time of my birth, I shall enter what in Italy is called my 70th year. Now, if you graduated from seminary in the early 1970s, as I did, these words may have grabbed your attention as they grabbed mine. Looking back on his first 39 years in this memoir, Vidal muses that in looking back, he is looking for clues as to what those first 39 years were all about. And I quote, as we grew more and more ingenious in finding new ways of killing off the human race and its support system, the small planet that each of us so briefly visits. The doll prophesies what we shall be, an extinct species on a dead planet. I've always been impressed by his barbed wit, but less by that than with his worldly realism about the way things supposedly are and the way things will likely turn out to be. But before we simply dismiss a child of this world, listen to what John Calvin had to say when he struggled with this same text from 1 John. It does not yet appear what we shall be. Calvin writes, physically we are dust and a shadow, and death is always before our eyes. It's springtime in Princeton, and our graduates are about to spring forth, just as some of you once sprang forth from this place. But the fall, however glorious, comes even to Princeton. And we will, sooner than we think, shuffle and slosh our way over carpets of rotting leaves, <laughs> reminding us that mortality is all about us. The high noon of summer will give way to shorter days of death and dying. And no amount of October clock changing will be able to hide that fact. Someday we too will fall like autumn leaves. We too shall fade away. Cut off from other living things, we too shall be declared dead. Whatever our attainments, our friends, and families will walk by on the other side that separates the quick and the dead. We shall be buried and scattered and very soon forgotten. This is our lot. This is our destiny. It does appear what we shall be. As the words of imposition from Ash Wednesday remind us, Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But in the face of mounting evidence, our text suggests that our final destiny, while certainly embracing the dust to which we shall return, also embraces the promise of the Christ 
whose will and way is still outstanding, of the one who is yet to appear, from whom more is to come, and who is not yet fully acknowledged or fully recognized even by us, the children of God, let alone this world. So in this sense, it does not yet appear what we shall be because the whole meaning and significance of our present life with Jesus Christ is not yet known. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Out on the horizon of the future, the Lord is coming to meet us. The shape of the human family and the shape of the church has not yet appeared in its final form because there is more to come from Jesus Christ. He is not only the Alpha back there, He is the Omega out ahead of us. The career of Jesus Christ is not over. So what we shall be is not yet in hand, but it is at hand. So can it be that the more we surrender our plans, our prognostications, as seriously as God's promises, the more we do that, we are beginning to catch a glimpse of the real world. If the future were not Jesus Christ, but simply the sum total of present trends, death and disillusion would be sovereign, as Calvin knows and as Vidal admits. But where Jesus Christ is confessed as our future, we have a hope and a peace that this world can neither give nor take away. Because Jesus Christ is the future, we are God's children now. Between the now and the not yet, what sustains us in the prisons and hells we sometimes make for ourselves and for each other? I think it's parables, stories that testify to the inbreaking of Jesus Christ where we would least expect it and have no evidence otherwise for it. In a world that is unraveling, in a world where globalized catastrophes abound, how we need this testimony from 1 John. Let me close with this testimony, with this story. Several years ago, I was honored to have Don Mullen in preaching class. Dr. Don Mullen had left his successful cardiovascular surgical practice in Milwaukee to the disbelief of his colleagues to begin a Master of Divinity program here at Princeton. Don and his wife Patsy sent to many of us an open letter after Don graduated in which they wrote, during the last year at Princeton Theological Seminary, along with a full load of classes, Don was president 
of the senior class and passed the ordination exam of the Presbyterian Church. Patsy was busy auditing classes, traveling back and forth between Charleston and Princeton, and continuing to be the mother of five adult children. It was a very intense year. Can you relate to that? <laughs> then they added this line. Since leaving the practice of cardiovascular surgery in Milwaukee three years ago, we, we did not realize what such a major transition in our lives would mean. When the Mullins moved from Milwaukee to Princeton, what Don years later called a radical change of direction in their vocations, in their lifestyles, yes, and in their politics, none of that had yet appeared. Between his final exams and commencement, Don flew to northern Iraq. There in the squalor of Kurdish refugee camps under the most appalling conditions, this Milwaukee surgeon treated three to four hundred people a day with the medicine of mercy. But that radical change of direction was only the beginning. It had not yet appeared that Dr. Mullen would go to the killing and maiming fields of Rwanda with the first medical team to enter the country in a half-destroyed Kigali hospital where he performed surgery. It had not yet appeared that he would also serve in 20 other countries, including the war-torn Sudan, as well as Uganda, Kenya, China, India, and Papua New Guinea. It did not yet appear that Don and Patsy would eventually retire to relatively wealthy Highlands, North Carolina, but surrounded by the pressing needs of Appalachia. It did not yet appear that Dr. Mullen would also become Pastor Mullen and Mayor Mullen and would help create the Highlands Cashiers Child Development Center for 65 preschool children of working families. Now, when Don Mullen sat in my classroom, I'm rather sure that the future I just sketched could not have been extrapolated or guessed at. No, as he and Patsy wrote, we did not realize what just such a major transition this would be in our lives and what it would mean. And they could not realize it even when they wrote those words. For the meaning of their radical change in direction did not yet appear. As we gather now at the Lord's table, I thank God who calls all of us in Jesus Christ and who gives us a future who gives us a calling. I thank God for Don and for Patsy, and I thank God for each of you, for your testimonies, and for the stories that we can share with each other about all who have come before us to Miller Chapel and have left Princeton Seminary to be very much in this world 
but on hand <laughs> for the real world, the world, the coming world, the coming world of God as its agents of hope. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, <laughs> but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. May the one who makes this promise become known to us again in the breaking of the bread.